Corinthians chapter number 10. 1 Corinthians chapter number 10 and verse number 16. I love the sound of the people of God. Amen. Making a joyful noise and greeting and fellowshipping. I want to say it's very good to have Vanya with us. Vanya came Sunday morning. It was the first time she'd ever been to church along with some others. And tonight she told me she wants to be baptized on Sunday morning. So praise God. Hallelujah. Let's clap our hands and thank the Lord for that. We're excited about that. Amen. We will celebrate with her. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse number 16 and 17. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16 and 17. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. We being many are one bread. Tonight, I want to speak for a few moments on types and shadows. This really is a discussion about communion, but we will title it Types and Shadows. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your greatness. We ask that your word would be a strength to us. Help us reflect on what you have richly done. We acknowledge you and thank you for everything, every blessing. You're worthy to receive praise. Amen. So we acknowledge you in the house of God tonight. We give to you thanks. We ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. You can be seated. Amen. It's good to be in the house of the Lord, and it's good to see everybody in the house of God tonight. The subject of communion has its roots in the Old Testament, which is a type and shadow to the New Testament. Before we launch into the discussion, let's talk just briefly about what a type is. A type is a person, a thing, or event that represents or symbolizes another that is to come. So it is a type and it reflects something that is to come. Everyone say type. That's what a type is. An antitype is the person or thing represented or foreshadowed by an earlier type or symbol. So the type projects forward something that is going to take place. The antitype is the thing that the type is pointing toward. So types and antitypes are all throughout the Old Testament. The scripture says, now these things are written for our examples. So there's a lot of types and shadows in the Old Testament that are pointing into the New Testament. Types and antitypes. The Passover is a type of the death of Christ. And the death of Christ is the antitype. The type is coming out of Egypt and the Passover experience. The antitype is Jesus himself. Since the communion service commemorates the death of Christ, we can also view it as the antitype of the Passover. Amen. So in order to give you some background and give you some context about the Passover, because the Passover is very, very important to understand. Israel had been in Egyptian bondage for 430 years. 
God heard their cry for deliverance, and so he sent Moses to Egypt and empowered him to lead the Israelites out of slavery. God worked many notable miracles through Moses, plaguing the Egyptians and defeating the Egyptian gods. As God prepared to unleash the last plague on Egypt, a death angel would go through Egypt killing the firstborn of every family. He commanded the Israelites to apply the blood of a lamb to the lintel. The lintel is the top of the door and the doorposts, the sides of the door of their homes to escape the plague. When the death angel saw the blood, he would pass over that home. God commanded Israel to keep the first feast of Passover to escape the plague and to keep later Passover feasts as a memorial of God's delivering them. So the Passover is absolutely central to understanding the communion service. It is the type of the anti-type, which is Jesus, death, burial, and resurrection, that helps us understand and helps us frame what we're doing when we partake of the Lord's body and his blood. Everybody okay so far? Types, antitypes. The Passover is the type. And so this is a, a great introduction to the Passover here tonight. This is the type. And here are some of the details that Israel was to carry out to keep the Passover feast. There were several elements. There was the lamb, there was the individual, and then there was the ordinance of the Passover. Let's talk about the lamb. It had to be fastened up from the 10th to the 14th of the month. It had to be without blemish. The reason why it was fastened up for four days is because there was examination that needed to take place. Was it the right sacrifice? Was it the right lamb? Was it the right goat? It had to be without blemish. It had to be a male of the first year. It had to be a sheep or goat. It had to be roasted, could not be eaten raw or boiled. Had to be eaten in entirety along with bitter herbs. Had to be kept whole. Not a bone of the lamb could be broken. So the lamb was significant, very significant to the Passover. The individual participant, that would be the person, was also significant. If a household was too small to eat an entire lamb, they were to invite their neighbors to help them eat all of the lamb. They were to apply the blood from the lamb to the lintel above the door and on the two side posts of the door, but never on the threshold. They were to be dressed for travel when they ate the Passover lamb. They were to eat it in haste with their loins girded. What in the world is that, loins girded? Loins girded means prepare oneself for action. As in, I'm going to gird up my loins for that crucial interview. Not too many people probably say that. This comes from a biblical understanding, which had to do with tucking your long robe into your belt so that you could be ready and there would be no uh, obstruction for whatever you were going to do. You were preparing yourself for action. They were to have their shoes on and they were to have their staff 
in hand. They were to put out all the leaven from their houses. They were to eat unleavened bread for seven days after the Passover. We'll talk more about what unleavened means. They were not to work on the day of the Passover. So these were elements of the participant. You had a lamb and you had a participant. There were requirements regarding the lamb. There were requirements regarding the the individual participant. This ordinance of the Passover was significant in the life of the Hebrews the first time and then in every generation in the Jewish understanding, even to this day. In the New Testament understanding, it also resonates with us. It was supposed to be observed in the month of Nisan. These uh, correspond to March and April of our calendar. Strangers who were not Israelites could not eat the Passover. Servants or slaves could eat the Passover if they had been circumcised. The Passover feast had to be eaten in one house. It was not to be carried from house to house or from place to place. Strangers could eat the Passover if the males submitted to circumcision. They were known as Jewish proselytes. One law was applicable to all, both to homeborn and to strangers, if they were to eat the Passover. All who were clean, not defiled through violation of the law, and not on a journey, had to eat the Passover, or they would be cut off from the people. Failing to observe the Passover was a sin. Again, this is the type. This is the type, the Old Testament pattern. Israel was to observe the Passover in the place where God placed his name. So these things typified the atoning death of Jesus and the communion service in the New Testament. And so that's very, very significant to the church today to understand the communion service is contingent upon understanding the Passover service. What an experience as the Hebrews came out of Egyptian bondage. They came out with a mighty hand, and God led them out after this last plague, which instituted the Passover. There are Passovers that are mentioned in the Scripture. There are ten accounts. Obviously, there are many more, as this was something that they would do every year at the same time every year to commemorate God bringing them out. But in the scripture, we have 10 accounts of the Passover. The original Passover in Exodus, the Passover in the wilderness in Numbers, the first Passover in Canaan, the Passover under Hezekiah, the Passover under Josiah, the Passover under Zerubbabel, the Passover Jesus attended as a boy, the first Passover during Jesus' ministry, the second Passover during Jesus' ministry, and the last Passover during Jesus' ministry where he instituted the communion service. Another Old Testament type that even predates the law was Abraham's meeting with Melchizedek where Abraham was served bread and wine and the king, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, blessed him and prayed over him. This is a beautiful type of the communion service as well. Christ's priesthood was after the order of Melchizedek rather than after the order of Aaron, according to Hebrews. So both of those scenarios and illustrations 
along with all of the details of what it takes in terms of the sacrifice, the individual, the ordinance of the Passover, the happenings and how it fit into the culture of the Jews from that moment it was instituted has always been something very, very important. That is the type. That's the Old Testament. The antitype is the New Testament perspective. It's the Lord's Supper. It's eating at the Lord's table. It is the Eucharist, which is a Greek word, Eucharistia, which, is, which means thanksgiving. They all mean the same thing. They're terms for the communion service. And there are numerous questions and ideas that are raised in connection with this service. And the reason why I'm teaching on this is because the 27th will be a communion service. We've not had communion for a long time because we've been displaced. And it needs to be done. If you were a Hebrew and uh, you were required to do it, if you were on a journey or you were unclean, there was another opportunity for you a month away from the initial opportunity. This is one of the reasons why we do two communion services a year. One, because the Passover was done every year. So the Passover represents that one time every year that they would recognize this. Jesus said, do this as often as you do it. Do it in remembrance of me. And so one is probably the requirement. Anything beyond that is, is secondary. Uh, you don't want to do it so much that it loses its value. And so two times, if someone misses one, they can pick up the second one. The communion service. So there's a lot of questions, numerous questions, ideas raised about this service. And so we're going to frame the discussion about communion and, and uh, we're going to answer some often asked questions. Everybody okay so far where we are? We have types, anti-types. The type that is significant is the Passover. Now we are in the anti-type. And the anti-type is Jesus Christ and the institution of the Lord's Supper. It is his body and it is his blood. And it's recognizing what he has richly done for us. Is anybody thankful that there was a sacrifice? Praise God. You, you, you can launch off of all of these elements. I'm thankful that there was a lamb that was a supreme lamb. Praise God. I don't have to fasten something up for four days and look at it and wonder if it's without blemish. In Jesus, you got everything that you need. He is the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. Praise God. And so we can make all these connections. And so let's just answer some questions here tonight. The first question we want to answer is this. What should we use to represent the body of Jesus Christ in the communion service? During the Passover, the Israelites removed all leaven and leavened bread from their houses. When Jesus broke bread in Matthew chapter 26 and he said, this is my body, he was using unleavened bread. Therefore, we should bake bread using plain flour and water, which we don't do, or buy unleavened bread, which we do do, prepared for the communion service. We buy a specific, prepared specifically for the communion service, an unleavened cracker that represents the body 
of Jesus. Amen. The pastor should serve the unleavened bread, should give thanks, Eucharisto, and bless the bread, setting it apart as a representation of the body of Jesus Christ that was broken for us. This answers the question, what should we use? Now, before I move on, let me talk about a doctrine that is out there called transubstantiation. It was a doctrine officially adopted by Pope Innocent III at the Lateran Council in A.D. 1215 that stated that the bread and fruit of the vine, when blessed by the priest, becomes the actual physical body and blood of Jesus Christ. This idea is unscriptural. Unleavened bread and the fruit of the vine are representatives of the body and blood of Jesus, but not his actual body and blood. And just for the record, that's really weird. That is really strange. So what should we use to represent the body of Jesus Christ in the communion service? We should use unleavened bread. And so when we say unleavened bread, then that obviously begs the question of what? What is leaven? That's the next question. What is leaven? Leaven is yeast or sourdough. And the verb leaven means to raise or seethe with fermentation. Leaven is the substance in bread that makes it rise, puff, and stand up. The Israelites were to remove all leaven from their houses during the Passover and for seven days afterward. The seven days following the Passover were known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Leaven is a type of sin, false doctrine, or error representing things that puff up, that exalt, that bring pride. As we can see from these following references, Jesus warned the disciples of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. He said, watch out for them. Why? They're puffed up. They're proud. They're arrogant. They are full of leaven. Paul warned us of the leaven of malice and wickedness, 1 Corinthians. Paul warned us that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. We must purge all spiritual leaven from our personal lives in order for us to keep the feast with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I can't approach the Lord's Supper with any kind of puffing up in my life. I've got to make sure that I purge out all of those things. No sin, leaven, was in the life of Jesus Christ. And to represent his body correctly, we must use unleavened bread. So that represents the body of Jesus. Number three, what should we use to represent the blood of Jesus Christ? There are two opinions here. One is that we should use unfermented grape juice, and the other is that we should use fermented wine. Believers should follow the teaching of their pastor and the practice of their local assembly. Either using wine or grape juice as representative of the blood of Jesus Christ is not a matter of salvation. Either is acceptable. However, it is a matter of type and precision. We should not use tomato juice, watermelon juice, or the like 
just because they come from a vine. Colas, apple juice, cranberry juice, and other beverages are not acceptable representatives of the blood of Christ either. The symbol requires the use of the grape as in the scripture. We here in our church use Manischewitz Conquered Grape. It is a Passover wine. This is very specific and by no means arbitrary. There is a common argument that, that suggests that it is an arbitrary matter of going in and grabbing something off of the shelf. This is a common ignorant argument. From the crushing of the grape to the final bottling, the entire process is completed under strict rabbinical supervision and is handled only by learned and a reliable, <clears throat> this is an interesting Jewish word, mashgikim. What is a mashgikim? A mashgikim is a Jew who supervises the status of a kosher establishment. A mashgikim may supervise any type of food service establishment, including slaughterhouses, food manufacturers, hotels, caterers, nursing homes, restaurants, butchers, groceries, or cooperatives. And so this is under strict rabbinical supervision, the whole process. This is not just a common red wine that you go in and you grab off the shelf. This is a Passover wine. And it's supervised by individuals that have been doing this ever since the first Passover. So when somebody says, well, well, you know, what are you doing? Or they make light of the fact of what you're using, they have no understanding of what you're actually using. You're using a Passover wine. Why wine? Because it is a better type. Jesus himself in Mark chapter 2 and verse 22 said, No man putteth new wine into old bottles, else the new wine doth burst the bottles. And the wine is spilled, and the bottles will be marred, but new wine must be put into new bottles. Why would he say that? Because there is power within the wine itself to cleanse itself. And if you put it in an old wineskin, it will blow out the wineskin. There is power within it. It is able to cleanse itself. This is why wines can be centuries old and they'll still maintain their integrity. Not so with unfermented grape juice. Not so. It is a coagulated mess. And so it's, it's a type. It's a matter of type. And, and there's a precision and a reason why we select what we do. It is not arbitrary. It is specific, very specific. And so then someone will say, well, I don't like to use wine because it has alcohol in it. Well, Concord Grape, the Passover wine that we use, is 11% alcohol. NyQuil, the medicine, is 10% alcohol. By FDA standards, pure vanilla extract contains a minimum of 35% alcohol. Vanilla extract has the same proof as Captain Morgan rum. 
Wow. And you can't buy vanilla extract in a liquor store, but it's sold in grocery stores, and for many, it is a household staple. There are foods that contain alcohol. Any extract or flavoring usually contain alcohol. Pure vanilla extract by U.S. law has to have at least 35% alcohol. And by the way, by the way, the amount of conquered great Passover wine that you are taking in communion is half the size of that NyQuil cup that is taken. All McCormick extracts list alcohol as their main ingredient. Vinegar has trace amounts of alcohol, 0.3% to 0.4%, which reduces the sharpness of vinegar, and so they add alcohol. Mustard has alcohol. Grey Poupon has white wine in it. Sir Kensington Dijon has white wine. Soy and other sauces. All Kikamon soy sauces have 1.5% to 2% alcohol. All of the following contain alcohol. Truvia Organic Sweetener, P.F. Chang, Teriyaki. There are studies that have, been sh that have shown there are trace amounts of alcohol in these soft drink brands. A&W Root Beer, Caffeine-Free Diet Coke, Canada Dry Ginger Ale, Coca-Cola, Diet Cherry 7-Up, Diet Dr. Pepper, Diet Sprite, Elliot's Brewed Iced Tea, Hawaiian Punch, Lemon Lime Slice Mountain Dew. There are other products that contain alcohol. Bordelais and mini sauces, compotes, desert glazes, fondue, kombucha, flavored chocolates, Pam cooking spray. You say, well, what are you, what, what are you doing with all this, brother? I'm, I'm, I'm pointing out to you that the amount of alcohol that is in a very specific communion wine, if you're going to say, I, I, well, I don't want to take any wine, then you're going to have to be, because there are some people that they don't want any alcohol, whether they drink it or whether it's in their food. That's a Muslim, that's dietary restrictions. And they follow that. They try to follow that. So their diet tries to eliminate all of those things. So it's not a matter of the alcohol that is in the communion wine. It is, it's in comparison to some of these other things, it's not a very high alcoholic content. And it is a very specific communion wine. You said, well, wouldn't that open the door if you use Passover communion wine to drinking. There's a stark difference between social drinking and drinking communion wine that is specific to an ancient practice, namely the Passover. We choose not to social drink, not because the Bible prohibits wine, because there is nothing in the Bible that prohibits wine, but there is a lot in the Bible that says drunkenness is a problem. And so rather than even going there, we just say we're not going to do that because of the dangerous elements associated to drunkenness. 
And therefore, there is a big difference between social drinking, which we do not do, and the, the specific ancient practice of the Lord's Supper, which is a communion wine that we do do. There's a strong distinction there. I personally like grape juice. I was raised with grape juice for communion. I took grape juice until I came here in 1992, and I also drink grape juice sometimes with breakfast. And for some, grape juice is fine. But I like the type of the communion wine and the history that is connected and associated to it. So I'm not using something that I've ever used in any other scenario except for communion. And therefore, to me, it has greater reverence. Whether one uses grape juice or wine to represent Christ's blood, the most important thing is that we have a right attitude and spirit. We should be so awed and overwhelmed that Christ would shed his blood for us that we cannot be contentious, offended, or driven away during such a holy moment. How we should long to remember his broken body and shed blood, and we can do so most perfectly in communion. So the pastor should bless the fruit of the vine as the representative of the blood of Christ, and all who partake should do so in holy reverence, giving praise and honor to Christ for shedding his blood for us. So we use unleavened bread. I've even seen people try to make a distinction between what to use with the bread and they point out you have white bread here, but that's not a good, that's not a good representation. You eat the wheat bread. And so they try to use that. But then they come over and try to do something with the wine, and it doesn't quite resonate as strong. So I believe what we're doing has great, great consistency to it. Amen. So our church, we take communion wine. It is a specific communion wine. Amen. Brother Brock likes to say, uh, 238, we don't dip, we submerge. And uh, I don't want it to slide down. I want it to burn down. I want to feel. I want to feel it. Number four, how often should we take communion? God's word does not specifically say how frequently. Paul said, as often as we do it, we're proclaiming the Lord's death till he comes. Since Israel observed the Passover once a year, we should celebrate communion at least once a year. This is a minimum. Observing communion as often as a pastor calls for it does not violate the scripture. However, we should never allow communion to become commonplace or taken lightly, regardless of how often we take it. Like my next door neighbor that rode up on her bicycle. I was standing in my yard, and she told me, I'll tell you one thing right now, what you need to do. I said, what do I need to do? She said, take communion every night. Well, <laughs> that might be overdoing it just a little bit, and then it becomes too common. So we, we strive to do it twice a year. And the reason we do it twice a year is once is important, but if somebody were to miss it, they can make it up 
at the latter part of the year. Number five, is taking communion part of our salvation? The Jews who were undefiled or not on a journey sinned and were cut off from Israel if they failed to observe the Passover. And so while communion is not part of the new birth experience, it is part of our life of obedient faith. And in this sense, it is part of our salvation. And so by all means, we should make it a point to be at church for communion. If someone is defiled spiritually with sin in his life or her life, he or she must repent before the communion service. You need to make things right so that there is a clean and fresh anointing that comes on you when you recognize what Christ has richly done for you. Amen. Somebody said amen. Number six, what is meant by Christ our Passover? Jesus Christ is the antitype of the Passover lamb. He is sacrificed for us as a lamb without spot or blemish. His blood has been applied to our lives through our obedience to the gospel. Blood from the Passover lamb was never placed on the threshold where people stepped out of the door, only on the top and the sides. And we should highly esteem Christ's blood and never tread it underfoot. Christ is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Praise God. Number seven, what two views do we receive in the communion service? We look backward to his death at Calvary with respect, awe, humility, thanksgiving, and love. We show the Lord's death, meaning we proclaim, declare, preach, speak of, teach, promulgate it. The way to show the Lord's death is by taking communion. So we're looking back because we recognize what Jesus has richly done for us at Calvary. And at the same time, we're looking forward because Paul said that we show his death till he come. So every time we take communion, we are in the present looking backwards in the past with thanksgiving and forward believing that he is going to come. Every communion service is a declaration that we believe in and expect the coming of the Lord. Praise God. Amen. Why don't you clap your hands and thank the Lord for that. I'm looking for his return. And when I take the Lord's supper, I'm doing that looking forward at the same time. Amen. Number eight. What is meant by taking communion unworthily? Well, unworthily is an adverb, and it means unfit or in an unworthy manner. Unworthy is a condition. Everybody in this building is unworthy. We're all unworthy. Thank God for his mercy and his grace. Praise God. While we were yet sinners, he died for the ungodly. Praise God. I shouldn't be here. You shouldn't be here. Why? Because we're not worthy. Because, but he deemed us to be worthy. And he gave to us his body and his blood. And he said, you may not be worthy, but I'm going to give you an opportunity to where you might be saved, cleansed, sanctified, and redeemed. Unworthily is a manner. It's, it's the way that you're approaching 
the service. These are two entirely different words. None of us feel worthy to partake of his body and blood, but he has made us worthy through salvation. So unworthily has to do with the manner, the spirit, the conduct, and the attitude by which we take communion. And that's what it means, number nine, what is meant by let a man examine himself. The Passover lamb You fastened it up for four days, and you examined it for spots and blemishes. And during this time, the individual made himself ready for the Passover by ridding his house of leaven. He had a job to do, not only with the lamb, but also in his personal space and what he utilized. Similarly, self-examination is a must before we engage in communion. Our hearts should be free of condemnation and guilt and sin when we take communion. We should precede this service spending time in prayer, soul searching, humiliation, possibly fasting, examining ourselves so that we're not approaching the service, not unworthy, but unworthily. If you've got odd with your brother and you're all tangled up with them and it's a mess, you need to go to them and you need to make it right. This is the power of the communion service. How, how dare you take communion when he has given you his body and his blood and he's forgiven you of all the things that you have trespassed and yet you can't forgive your brother or your sister. You need to go make it right. Jesus forgave you a whole lot more than what you're forgiving somebody else. And if you're holding on to little petty grievances and you're hanging on to that, but yet you want God to pour out his mercy to you, that's not examining yourself. Amen. If you've got stuff and you're, you're crossways, make it right. Make it right. Make it right. Why should we examine ourselves? To prevent us from eating and drinking unworthily, Paul said, 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. To prevent us from being weak, sickly, or dying. If, if, If you don't follow this pattern, spiritually you are weak, spiritually you are sickly, spiritually you are dying. And if you let some of that stuff fester in your physical body, you're also going to suffer physically because of what is transpiring spiritually and emotionally. This is why bitterness is terrible. You get bitterness down in your spirit and it starts to grow. It has an effect on you physically. This is not good. This is not of God. We've got a body and we've got the blood of Jesus Christ that washes and cleanses and we take the Lord's Supper because we recognize what he has richly done in our life and we pattern that to other people. Amen. To prevent us from being judged with the world, instead we are to judge ourselves which means to separate thoroughly, to withdraw from, to discriminate, to discern. Judge here means punish, avenge, condemn, decree, or sentence. Let judgment begin in the house of God. 
Praise God. It's my responsibility to examine myself so it's not the world that's judging me. But I'm doing the job that I need to do. Self-examination before communion is a scriptural requirement for each of us. Amen. Praise God. A few more here and we will be finished tonight. Number 10, what is meant by a bone of him shall not be broken. The Passover lamb was sacrificed and there was a special requirement. Neither shall you break a bone thereof. Exodus chapter 12, verse 46. The lamb was a type of Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb. And it was prophesied that there would not be a bone of him that would to be that was to be broken in Psalm 34 and verse number 20. The Roman practice of crucifixion, when someone was crucified, they would break the legs to hasten the person's death. When the soldiers came to Jesus while he was hanging on the cross, he had already died. Therefore, instead of breaking his legs, they pierced his side, thus fulfilling prophecy in Zechariah chapter 12 and verse number 10. Not a bone of him was broken as had been prophesied. Jesus became the perfect antitype of the Passover lamb. And John said, behold, the lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. There's a type and antitype even in this on preaching. We would do well to fulfill this type by not breaking the word of the Lord. We are to rightly divide it and obey it, not break the bones Thank God for a preacher that's going to preach from the scripture, going to bring conviction, not condemnation, but he's not up here to break people's bones. That's not rightly dividing the word of God. The word of God and through preaching should convict you. The word of God should encourage you. The word of God should should propel you to move forward. It is not a thing of God to get in a pulpit and beat people over the head and try to break people's bones with the authority of the word of God. Praise God. Oh, I, I think I should get a few more hand claps for that because I don't want to break anybody's bones. I want to mend them. I want to see them grow in grace. I want to see God do great things in their life. Amen. Praise God. Praise God. Number 11, what is meant by discerning the Lord's body? And this is our last one before our conclusion here tonight. The Bible uses the word body in several ways, but it's obvious in 1 Corinthians chapter number 11 that discerning the body is talking about Jesus' body, and it's talking about the communion service. Apparently, in the Corinthian church, they were bringing individual and family meals because in the passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 22, Paul said, have you not houses to eat and to drink in? This is the unworthily thing that they were doing. They were coming to the communion service with their own meals, and this was causing problems. There was division and disharmony because the rich had plenty and were even getting drunk while the poor were ignored. No communion service was ever intended to be a full-fledged meal such as we eat at home. This is unworthily, and this is what they were doing. Such eating would be irreverent, 
and unacceptable as a memorial to the Lord's death. It should be something that is elevated above that. We're participating in something that is greater, and the reality of what it is is greater than just the casual meal that you sit down to eat. We should take only a small piece of unleavened bread and a small portion of the fruit of the vine. We eat the unleavened bread first and then drink the fruit of the vine immediately afterward recognizing what God has richly done for us. And in conclusion, Israel was to observe the Passover as a memorial throughout all generations and to keep it as an ordinance forever. Paul referred to ordinances or precepts or traditions or commands of authoritative nature or of an established religious right. And he admonished the church to keep the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. Amen. First Corinthians chapter 11 deals with two specific ordinances, hair and the communion service. And God's ordinance of the Passover continues in the New Testament era of grace through the communion service. I've got to be honest with you here tonight. I'm really excited and I'm looking forward to the communion service. We've been displaced. We haven't had it. COVID hit. All of that kind of stuff. I want I want God to know that I am so very appreciative of his body that was broken for me. I want him to know how excited I am about his blood that was shed that is still efficacious and effective. It doesn't matter what sin, there is a blood of Jesus that is able to cover it completely. The enemy may want to bring up a bunch of stuff, but if you get it under the blood, it's under the blood in God's eyes and in God's mind. Let the accuser of the brethren try to bring up a bunch of junk. But Jesus has paid the ultimate price. Hallelujah. He's paid the ultimate price. <laughs> and he's given to us opportunity to come into this house and to worship. Now, I need to say this. I'm excited because Vanya's She's going to get baptized on Sunday morning. And a few days later, there's going to be a communion service. The type, you could not participate in communion unless you were circumcised in the type. The antitype in the New Testament is we're not circumcised with the circumcision of hands. But we're circumcised through baptism in Jesus' name where he cuts away from the heart. <laughs> What's a requirement of communion? You need to be baptized in Jesus' name. Amen. You need to be baptized in Jesus' name. Praise God. This continues, and we are to observe this until the Lord returns. Amen. May we never forget the communion of the body and the blood of Christ, remembering that's in with where we started. Remembering that we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. Jesus Christ has paid it all as we stand together in the house of God today. Amen. 
We are one bread, we are one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. Why don't you lift your hands and do the Eucharisto, which is give to him thanksgiving. Praise God. Anybody thankful in the house of God tonight? I thank you, Jesus, and worship you and praise you and magnify you. Praise God. Come on, that's it. Oh, the blood of Jesus.